The Republican-led U.S. House formalizes an impeachment inquiry into President Biden's family business dealings, a move he calls a political stunt. It's Thursday, December 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin is holding one of his signature marathon question-and-answer sessions today, the first since the invasion of Ukraine. Plus, how Israel says it's using artificial intelligence in its war against Hamas. Also this hour, cobalt is needed to make electric car batteries, but most of the mines are owned by China. This is why America having its own cobalt supply is so important. So why did a cobalt mine in Idaho close just months after opening? And the next steps in the legal fight against the Atlanta Police Training Center called Cop City. Sunny today in the 30s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House has voted to formally begin an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. NPR's Mara Liason reports. In a statement, President Biden called the impeachment vote a baseless political stunt and said instead of funding Ukraine's fight against Russia or Israel's fight against terrorists or more security for the U.S. southern border, Republicans are leaving town for a month. Republicans say that Biden and his family engaged in influence peddling and took payments from foreign adversaries, but so far they have not presented any clear evidence to back up those allegations. Mara Liason, NPR News, Washington. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is going to Israel today. He will reiterate the Biden administration's call to Israel to do more to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza as it battles Hamas militants. Sudan, Gaza, and South Sudan are at the top of the list of world emergencies. That's according to the aid group, the International Rescue Committee. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the group says growing political fragmentation makes it hard to resolve these conflicts. Every year, the International Rescue Committee puts out a watch list of countries that are likely to be in the most need of aid. The IRC's president, David Miliband, says there were a lot of changes this year. Most striking to me is that countries like Ukraine, Syria, Yemen and Afghanistan have all dropped out of the top 10. Uh, This is mainly because other countries have got worse. Sudan is now at the top of the list as that country's army battles a rival paramilitary group in a conflict that has uprooted millions of people. The IRC says Israel's war against Hamas has made Gaza the deadliest place for civilians in the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A Georgia appeals court is hearing a case today involving a controversial public safety training center in Atlanta. There's an effort underway to call a city referendum on whether to halt construction of the project. The court is hearing a challenge on whether the process to gather petition signatures for the referendum was valid. From member station WABE, Shemaine Cruz has more. State law says the petitioners witnessing signatures must be registered Atlanta voters and meet a 60-day deadline. But opponents of so-called Cop City say they faced a tighter time crunch because of delays caused by the city clerk's office. A federal judge later granted them an extension and ruled that non-Atlanta residents could also witness signatures. The city of Atlanta appealed that decision, pausing its enforcement. And it says it can't begin counting the thousands of signatures that were submitted in support of the referendum petition until it receives clarity from the court. It also argues the petition would illegally cancel the contract for the training center. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, stocks are higher. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Leading medical groups are urging state lawmakers to revise state drug laws to allow communities to open overdose prevention sites. Those are also called supervised consumption sites. The Department of Public Health issued a report yesterday saying the sites are needed to help reduce a record high number of overdose deaths in the state. Massachusetts Medical Society President Dr. Barbara Spivak agrees. We've done very little that is truly successful. And so our goal should be to promote this in every community in in the state. Even if state laws change, federal laws would still prohibit the monitoring of illegal drug use. The acting U.S. attorney for Massachusetts has not said if he'd prosecute staff at overdose prevention centers or move to close the sites. A judge today considers the latest legal moves over the suspension of the state's top cannabis regulator. State Treasurer Deborah Goldberg is asking a judge to allow her to move forward with a suspension hearing for Cannabis Control Commission Chair Shannon O'Brien. Goldberg suspended O'Brien in September. She's accused of making racially and culturally insensitive remarks in the workplace. Last week, a judge delayed a closed-door meeting between the two. Non-citizens are a step closer to having the right to vote in Boston city elections. City councilors yesterday passed a petition asking state legislators to approve that right. The plan will also require sign-up from the mayor and governor to take effect. Communities including Newton, Somerville and Cambridge have similar measures awaiting approval from the state house. New Hampshire's attorney general is again taking legal action against a white supremacist group that's been active across New England. As Todd Bookman reports, this case focuses on a protest in the state's capital. In June, members of NSC 131 targeted the Teetotler Cafe, a business on Main Street in Concord that was hosting a drag time story hour. Members of the group were seen banging on the glass, yelling slurs, and at times making Nazi salutes. Sean Locke with the AG's office said the incident went beyond protected free speech because it was targeting a place of public accommodation and doing so because of the alleged victim's sex or gender. That is, you know, for our purposes, an important distinction between kind of a peaceful, again, I'm standing outside holding my sign protest and an effort to, you know, as the statute requires, incite, compel or coerce a business to engage in unlawful discrimination. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. 706 it is. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. The Bruins fell to the Devils in overtime last night. The final from New Jersey was 2-1. to one. The Bees will visit the New York Islanders tomorrow. The Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. Boston won when the teams played on Tuesday night. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-30s. Clear overnight with a low in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. Sunny again on Saturday and in the upper 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Russian President Vladimir Putin is talking today. A lot. This is an almost annual tradition. Putin holds an extended press conference at the end of the year. He also hosts a televised call-in show with the Russian public. I say almost annual because Putin skipped this last year as his invasion of Ukraine went wrong. Today, both rituals are back and combined into one. NPR's Charles Maines is following along in Moscow and joins us now. Hey there, Charles. Good morning. I guess we should note, as you and I are talking, uh, we're in the middle of an event that can usually go for hours. So what is Putin saying? Well, so far, it's classic Putin with his meld of conservatism and nationalism. Uh, Once again, we hear him arguing that Russia is the defender of so-called traditional values, uh, accusing the West of trying to isolate and destroy the country. Uh, Let's listen to a taste. So here Putin says that Russia's very survival uh, rests on maintaining its sovereignty. The implication here that Russia needs to defend its independence from the West in every sphere, from politics to culture to the economy. Now, Putin in some ways undermined the main intrigue of today's event with last week's announcement, uh, given at a small Kremlin gathering rather than from the big stage here, that he intends to stand for a fifth term in office uh, when the country holds elections in March of next year. Mm -hmm. So today, de facto, Putin is in campaign mode. Uh, Moreover, for an election he's universally expected to win, Uh, yet in its own strange way, this year-end press conference event is also what passes for retail politics here. Russians submit videos pleading with Putin directly to intervene with problems that affect daily life, you know, saying we've got no hot water, we need someone to fix the heating, the the mayor won't build the bridge, all that kind of stuff. And so we often see Putin all too happy to intervene, you know, forever the benevolent czar. This seems like an event where the event itself is part of the message. So what do we learn from the fact that Putin, unlike last year, is holding it? Well, quite a bit, I think. You know, Putin canceled last year's event, as you note, uh, amid Russia's invasion as it wasn't going well. Uh, But clearly, Putin is feeling much more confident these days about Russia's prospects. And the fact that he's on the stage is proof of that. You know, he's arguing Russia's wartime economy has successfully weathered Western sanctions. He points to Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. And he sees U.S. military support for Ukraine, in particular in Congress, uh, stalling. Uh, Meanwhile, Russia has settled in for this war over the long haul. Just last night, Ukraine says Russia launched another barrage of drones and missiles. So the Russian attacks keep coming, and Putin argues that Russia will come out on top and keep fighting until it achieves its goals in Ukraine, uh, even if that's at great human cost. Although, how much of that is hours-long theater from Putin? You know, you can think of it as informative theater. Uh, There are plenty of moments designed to make Putin look good, and there are certainly real questions, even tough ones, with the caveat that there are usually no follow-ups. So Putin, who after all has been doing this for two decades, quite easily handles these meddlesome queries from journalists. And even though Russia's media are almost entirely state-controlled, there are difficult questions being raised in Russian society, uh, particularly over the war in Ukraine, which is soon entering its third year. Uh, For example, we've heard from families of mobilized conscripts, uh, civilians who were drafted into the war last September in what was a very unpopular move by Putin. They've been angling to get an audience with Putin today and demand the return of their loved ones from the front immediately. Interesting. So he has an opportunity to take tough questions, but on his terms. Exactly. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much. Thank you. How much should President Biden give up in order to get U.S. help for Israel and Ukraine? The White House has requested funds to support both U.S. allies. Many Republicans in Congress say they want the money, too, but some oppose helping Ukraine 
And in Congress, the party has demanded that the president give something in return, a crackdown on migration at the southern U.S. border, making it harder for asylum seekers to stay, among other things. This raises questions of both policy and politics. So we have called Maria Cardona, a Democratic strategist with the Dewey Square Group. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thank you so much, Steve. Great to be with you. Hasn't the president already signaled he would do some version of this deal? The president has signaled that he is absolutely willing to negotiate. He has always said that. You know, Steve, he is one that is a big fan of compromise and bipartisanship because that's the only way that you can get something done in this incredibly divided, polarized country. But what I think the White House and Democrats need to be aware of is they should not be giving up the store for aid for Ukraine, for Israel, which is incredibly important, but it's temporary. Asylum law, immigration law are things that are so incredibly complicated. And as you know, it has taken years and decades for Republicans and Democrats to come together. And they haven't even been close to trying to get a deal done. And so it is not appropriate uh, to try to do this at the 11th hour as a writer on money that most Democrats, most Republicans agree that should get done. This is something that should be done in a carefully bipartisanship manner. Look, this is a problem that has been in the making for mm -hmm. years. And during the Trump administration, they completely eviscerated our asylum system. So you can't fix this in a week or two. Understood, but let me just ask, and you make an interesting point. If I can, you make, a, you make an interesting possible, point. You make an, I'm not sure if you can hear me, Maria, but it, 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 you make a very interesting point in that, that Republicans are demanding something permanent in exchange for something temporary, which seems a little mm -hmm. bit awkward, to say the least. And right. yet the president knows that his job is to enforce the law, knows that he has a political problem as well as a policy issue with people crossing the border. There are Democratic mayors complaining about migrants in their cities. Would it perhaps help the president to make this deal politically? Well, look, like I said, the president is certainly willing to sit down and look at what needs to be done. He is uh, willing to concede some things. But what he shouldn't be willing to concede is everything. What Republicans want, and make no mistake about this, Steve, they want to shut down the border. They don't want any additional immigrants to come in here to try to live a better life. They don't want to give any affirmative relief, any additional legal pathways for the 11 million undocumented immigrants that have been long settled here in the country. And so those are things that Republicans, if they really want to negotiate, it's called a negotiation, Steve. They are not offering anything for this, it, it, except for the money for Ukraine and Israel. If they really want a deal that works on the border, they have to be willing to give something. As you know, that it's a very difficult uh, situation. And what Democrats and this president should not accept is the Trump and Stephen Miller, who, as you know, yeah, is I'm, his I understand, uh, but let, well known let, let's, xenophobic yeah, advisor. Yeah, I, I understand. Let's to remember. Shut down everything. Let's remember that, that, that some Trump policies, and, and this is a disputed point, but some Trump policies were continued by the, by the current president. What, in, in the few seconds that we have, what is something that you think the president could give up that would be reasonable in the context of this negotiation and is simple enough to get done quickly? 
what he has already given Steve, and I don't think this has been reported enough, is he has given, uh, he has signaled that he wants to do additional border security, smart border security measures, Steve, additional money for border patrol, additional money for technology, additional money for asylum caseworkers, for asylum judges, immigration judges at the border to be able to process the people that are coming here to seek asylum, which, as you know, is something that we should be, that that is possible under the law. Sure. And that is not something that we should be changing at the 11th hour, Steve. Something you could there be, are things you could that can do, be accepted, I, negotiated, but we should not be giving away everything and shutting down our border. Okay, and that is something that, that, that two sides could agree on plausibly. It's just more money to make the system work faster. Thanks so much, Maria Cardona. I appreciate your insights. Thank you so much, Steve. Okay, virtual reality headsets, online gaming platform memberships, and mini robots top a lot of kids' must-have gift lists this year. The smart toy sector, as it's called, is worth close to $17 billion. Some parent and consumer groups say these tech-driven toys are not safe. NPR's Chloe Veltman explains. The 2023 naughty list of tech toys that spy, steal and shock includes physical products like the Amazon Echo Dot Kids and VTEX Kitty Buzz. A smart device for fun messaging with friends. As well as virtual ones, such as subscriptions to Amazon's Twitch online gaming platform and gift cards to pay for Roblox's in-game currency. Shelby Knox is the online safety campaign director for Parents Together, the nonprofit behind the annual tech toy naughty list. We don't think that kids should be raised without access to tech. But there is a long track record of seeing kids really hurt by tech products. Kids can be hurt in a variety of ways. They can be exposed to bullying, scammers or sexual predators. But Knox says the majority of the products on the naughty list are there because of data security and privacy concerns. Kids' private information is a literal goldmine to these companies because they make money selling data about kids to online advertising firms. In 2018, for example, the Federal Trade Commission fined VTech, the maker of the smartphone-like Kiddie Buzz, for allegedly collecting the personal information of hundreds of thousands of children without their parents' consent. VTech paid the fine but issued a statement at the time saying it did not admit any violations of law or liability. Parents have a whole new set of threats they have to be thinking about when it comes to what toys they should bring into their homes for the holidays. That's RJ Cross. She's a policy analyst with US Perg, the consumer protection nonprofit's latest annual Trouble in Toyland report, adds that these smart toys can potentially expose children to harmful content within the games themselves. Take Meta's Quest virtual reality headsets. This is really immersive technology that feels so, so real when you're inside of it. Meta lowered the recommended minimum age for their use earlier this year. Cross says now kids as young as 10 can use them to play edgy multiplayer games available through Meta's Rec Room app. This is one of the most popular apps Meta has on its app store. Rec Room is full of user-created games, some of them very disturbing. But for Meta, it's like whack-a-mole. Once they take down one version of a troubling game, another user puts up a different version. Meta's website does have a guide for parents and preteens concerning the safety of its VR offerings. It includes written content warnings and a video. It can feel intense to be immersed in an experience, and it could prompt an emotional reaction. 
And in a statement to NPR, Meta said... Chloe Veldman on NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Israeli military says it's using AI to target Hamas in Gaza, but it's unclear how well the system's working. It's 719. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act, so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Scott Tong. Arlington National Cemetery plans to remove a mammoth Confederate monument. The cemetery calls the structure a mythologized version of the Confederacy. It touches upon virtually every lost cause theme, every central element of the lost cause narrative. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. We'll have highs only in the upper 30s. There might be some gusty winds. Still mostly clear tonight. Temperatures will be in the upper 20s. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 50s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadil. It's a task that seemed impossible on the face of it. So impossible that one newspaper called it the worst possible idea in a rave review because director Paul King pulled it off in Wonka, his prequel of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that serves hope, optimism, and magic. Wonka tells the origin story of a young Willy Wonka long before he became the sour fantasy chocolate maker from Roald Dahl's books. Wonka, played by Timothy Chalamet, gets tricked into forced labor for a basement wash house, but he quickly dreams up an invention to free him up, along with others trapped there. But now, with Willy Wonka's wild and wonderful wishy-washy Wonka Walker, please don't make me say that again, Tittles gets to run, and I can have fun. He ultimately enrolls the wash house crew for an underground chocolate-making operation and the opening of his first store. I spoke with Paul King earlier about his inspirations for the film. It's out in theaters Friday. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a book I adored growing up. And, uh, you know, I have this old battered copy I read cover to cover till the pages fell out of the spine. And I love the Gene Wilder movie and the, and the Tim Burton movie as well. So when David Heyman, the producer, mentioned the idea of making a, a young Wonka, I felt apprehensive, I suppose. And I went back and 
read Charlie again as a grown-up, I'd kind of forgotten how incredibly emotional a story it is. And you're really following this sort of almost Dickensian little impoverished child who, uh, you know, stops outside the factory to sniff each day. And at the end, when he inherits the factory and receives the greatest of all imaginable gifts, I was weeping, you know, like at the end mm. of A Christmas Carol or something. I grew up on these books too. And um, I came out of the movie just so charmed. It was so uplifting. Oh, great. I mean, it's not like Roald Dahl doesn't deal with pretty dark themes, but you created something that overall felt empowering and positive and fun? We remember the darkness and we remember the sort of saltiness, but there's a huge sweetness. And I think that's why Roald Dahl works so well, that it's got this sort of brittle exterior, but there really is a beating heart of joy and love to his stories that makes them endure. But this is an imagined pre-life for Willy Wonka. If you could just talk about making this magical dream come true on film for this character. Sure. Well, so our movie is set 25 years before the events of The Chocolate Factory. And I was interested in taking that spirit of generosity that exists at the heart of Willy Wonka. And there's these lines in Pure Imagination that really spoke to me where he goes, want to change the world? There's nothing to it. And I thought that was a very empowering journey to take a character on. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it. There is no life I know. I was really interested in, in the way we tell young people that if you dream and you talent and you work hard, it's all going to come true. But the world is not always like that and it doesn't always reward that. And I think what's so lovely about Timothy's performance is, is to seeing somebody discover that the world is a, a sort of a harder, tougher place than they'd imagined and then getting the courage to do something about it rather than being beaten down by it. I've got to ask, though, because Roald Dahl in 2023 is viewed kind of differently than he was in the 80s and 90s. It was just this year where Puffin removed words in some of his stories around race, mental health, physical appearance, his family, the Roald Dahl Story Company, apologized for anti-Semitic remarks he made in life. How did you wrestle with the demons of the man who created Willy Wonka as you crafted a movie based on his work? I mean, he's not somebody I ever met. And I came to him through the stories which seemed to me uh, funny and, and enchanting as a child. So I didn't have to, to really wrestle with that. One of our producers was Luke Kelly, who's actually Roald Dahl's grandson and was running the Roald Dahl Story Company. So for, oh. I know for him, it's much more a sort of personal thing. Whereas for me, I was fortunate enough just to be able to enjoy the books and the stories and immerse myself in his writing without having to, to wrestle with Dahl the man. But the film does wrestle with really important themes, race, poverty, hypocrisy, but it does it in this childlike, innocent way. If you could talk about that approach. I always felt that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was really a book about greed and generosity. And it always seemed to me that the bad characters are really different aspects of greed. All the baddies are greedy in different ways. And, and Charlie is, of course, 
the opposite of that. We got a sort of three-headed villains. So there's Slugworth, Ficklegruber and Prodnose. And I guess it's a sort of hat off to the Boggis Bunsen and Bean of Fantastic Mr. Fox and their, their characters that Dahl has in Charlie. Uh, that he sort of uh, briefly alluded to as kind of rival chocolatiers. And then we've got the chief of police, played by King Michael Key, who just loves the candy and uh, can't, can't get enough chocolate. And I feel closest to him spiritually. Same. <laughs> and what I love about that, the way Keegan plays it is he, he knows how wrong it is at every stage. And he knows it, he, his eyes are wide open to what is happening. He knows what he's doing. He knows he shouldn't be doing it. It's going to end badly. And he just can't resist it at all. It's hilarious. What about the actual magic of what this looked like? I mean, I understand a lot of the chocolate that was being made was actually edible. We had this incredible chocolate maker called Gabriella Cugno. And, and I was so honored to work with her because she's a, a sort of an artist in miniature and and there's really no need for the chocolates in the film to really even be edible or certainly to taste good but she's such an amazing artist and everything tasted incredible it looked incredible and i just felt blessed to work with her i mean i'm not saying i'd leave morning edition but the next time you make a movie with all this chocolate <laughs> i'm available will you come and come and be a taster sure it's the dream job. Yeah, it sounds great. It's bad for the waistline, though, yeah. I have to say. she's She's got a stronger backbone than I do. I, I would just eat, eat, eat. That's Paul King, director of Wonka, which is out in theaters Friday. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBR's Morning Edition. A federal appeals court in Atlanta will hear arguments today in a case that could determine if voters can decide whether the construction of a controversial police training center will go forward. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's been nearly 22 months since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin says the war will end when Moscow is victorious. He's heard here through a BBC interpreter. There will be peace when we achieve our goals, which you've just spoken about. Now, let's return to those goals. They do not change. Putin was speaking earlier today in his traditional end-of-year news conference. In Brussels, leaders of the European Union are meeting to discuss sending billions of dollars in aid to Kyiv and whether to begin the formal process of extending EU membership to Ukraine. Testimony has concluded in New York in the $250 million civil fraud trial involving former President Donald Trump. He's accused of lying about his net worth to obtain favorable loan terms with lenders and insurance companies. NPR's Andrea Bernstein is following the trial. 
even before testimony began, the judge ruled in favor of the New York Attorney General in the first claim of her case that the Trumps had committed persistent and repeated fraud. And the judge ordered the Trumps to start turning over their business certificates in preparation for a possible dissolution of the company. That part's been put on hold. Closing arguments are scheduled next month. Trump has called the case a scam. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The T says it's falling short of some of its annual safety goals. The agency reported three safety incidents in the past two weeks. One left a worker hurt. The other two involved electricity being turned back on to power lines in active work sites. Those are classified as near misses. The T says it's implementing plans to avoid similar incidents in the future. The founder of a Boston fertility clinic faces accusations he used his own sperm to impregnate a patient during a procedure some 40 years ago. A lawsuit filed this week alleges Dr. Merle Berger intentionally switched samples used during fertility treatment for Sarah Depoyan in the 1980s. Depoyan's daughter says she determined Berger was her father through an at-home DNA test. Adam Wolf is Depoyan's attorney. Dr. Berger's heinous and intentional misconduct is unethical, unacceptable, and unlawful. Berger denies the allegations and says they will be disproved in court. Local artists in Northampton gave a welcome surprise to congregants at a local synagogue. Nirvani Williams reports it was a way for the community to show support after the House of Worship received a bomb threat last month. Rabbi Ricky Kozowski of Beit Ahava says she was surprised with this art installation of colorful ribbons, at least a hundred, strung up on wires crisscrossed on the ceiling of the sanctuary space where they hold prayer and events. All the constituents who use the Bombic Center for Arts and Equity wrote messages from the heart to the community, um, to the Jewish community, to Beit Ahava, but also to all of us, messages of peace and love and healing and support. Kozowski says especially in a time of tragedy with the Israel-Hamas war, it was inspiring to see messages of hope from the community. She says anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are rising and hopes these displays of kindness can remind everyone that support from neighbors can bring peace and love during hardship. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. The Bruins lost to the Devils 2-1 to in overtime last night in New Jersey. The Bees will visit the New York Islanders tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers. WBUR supporters include endless energy, hot water heater replacements, and same-day or next-day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter. GoEndlessEnergy.com. Windy with highs only in the upper 30s today, but it'll be sunny. Mostly clear in upper 20s tonight, then a sunny Friday with a warm-up to highs in the low 50s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Israel's military says it struck 250 targets in Gaza yesterday. 250 targets in a single day. 
In months of war, Israeli forces have hit tens of thousands of buildings in Gaza in its campaign to wipe out Hamas. This is what President Biden called indiscriminate bombing the other day, although Israeli officials insist they are carefully choosing targets, often using artificial intelligence. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been looking into that part of the story. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How does the Israeli system work? The system's called the gospel, and basically it takes an enormous quantity of surveillance data, crunches it all together, and makes recommendations about where the military should strike. I spoke to Tal Mimran, a lecturer at Hebrew University who has worked in the Israeli military as a legal advisor on targeting, and here's what he said about it. So basically, gospel imitates what a group of intelligence officers used to do in the past. Now, there are still people in the loop. The Israeli military says all recommendations are reviewed by human analysts, but when it comes to generating targets, the system seems to be quite speedy. They used gospel in a similar conflict with Hamas in 2021, and it produced 200 targets on relatively short notice. That's something Mimran says human analysts would have struggled to do. When you talk about an enormous quantity of surveillance data, you're making me uh, imagine you can monitor people's cell phone uh, locations and conversations. You might have human sources on the ground. You might have past information from past incursions into Gaza. Am I getting this about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. The AI probably works on all this stuff, including um, drone footage as well or satellite images. Oh, okay. Uh, does it work? Well, this is, you know, the tough question to answer. Researchers agree that AI is good at sorting through all this data. But there's disagreement about whether it can really deliver targeting results. That comes down to training. And we know Israel's AI has had training problems in the past. For example, intelligence services kept records of everything they classified as a target, but they didn't keep records of things that weren't targets. Now, you'd want to train your AI so it could learn from both. Hmm. Heidi Kleff is an AI expert at a company called Trail of Bits. She's very critical of the idea of putting AI in charge of targeting, in part because she thinks the training data just won't be good enough to tell a Hamas fighter from a civilian. You're ultimately looking at imprecise and biased target automation that's really not far from indiscriminate targeting. Oh, and she just used that word indiscriminate, which is the same word that President Biden is using this week. Um, why is there so much damage, I guess, is a fair question. Why would there be so much damage in Gaza if AI is that precise? Yeah, there's there's sort of two possible answers in my mind. I mean, either the military's AI targeting isn't working very well, or the Israeli military has decided it's okay to do more damage and kill more civilians to reach its goals. And you know, this brings up another really interesting issue with using AI in this way. These machine algorithms train themselves, and Clef says that kind of dilutes the blame if things go wrong. It then becomes impossible to trace decisions to specific design points that can hold any individuals or military accountable for an AI's actions. Now, others I spoke to say the legal landscape doesn't change. Commanders are still responsible. But we really don't know how this would play out if there were, say, a war crimes trial over a target an AI had chosen. Okay. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thanks for the insights. Thank you. The year now ending, 2023, is the hottest year on record. It is also a year when many countries have invested billions of dollars in electric vehicles. The batteries to power them contain some tough-to-find materials, and locking down sources is not easy. Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. 
Last October, some major VIPs gathered at a landmark event to celebrate a great stride in the reduction of fossil fuel use. Good afternoon, everyone. It was a good old-fashioned ribbon-cutting. Yeah, we even have scissors. The governor, people from the Commerce Department, even some diplomats were there. I'm Arthur Sinodinas, Australian ambassador to the U.S. To get to this ribbon cutting, Sinodinas flew across the country and braved 30 miles of unpaved switchback roads to get to a remote mine 8,000 feet up in Idaho's Salmon River Mountains. I'm really stoked to be here. I'm out in the middle of nowhere with some of my best friends uh, for the opening of their cobalt mine. That would be the only cobalt mine in the U.S. Cobalt is an essential ingredient in the batteries that power our phones and electric cars. But it can be hard to find. The mountains here have one of the only known deposits in the U.S. Bryce Crocker heads Gervois Global, the Australian company that owns the mine. Cobalt is critical, so that was a huge opportunity. And obviously, this is why we've invested. Right now, most of the cobalt the U.S. and its allies use come from mines that are owned or controlled by China or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And that is a potential problem. Car batteries are meant to replace oil as a main source of energy. And if that energy supply is put in jeopardy, it threatens the economy's ability to function. This is why America having its own cobalt supply is so important. Considering all of that, a cobalt mine seems like a pretty fail-safe investment, but... Unfortunately, shortly after the opening ceremony, the cobalt price steadily collapsed. From about $40 a pound to 15 where it still is today. At that price, Crocker's mine can't break even. We had to close the mine before we started and let go almost 300 people. But how did this happen, especially when demand for cobalt is expected to double in the next few years? Cobalt prices are at multi-year lows, and a lot of people are kind of surprised by that. Casper Rawls with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence says there was a massive ramp-up in cobalt production during the pandemic, and the markets are still flooded. At the same time, global demand for electric vehicles has declined. But also, he says, mining is just a tough business. We call this the great raw material disconnect. Namely that, yes, cobalt is a critical part of most countries' and companies' future plans, but future plans don't pay bills, and the bills for mines are very real. Just opening a mine can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The stat on average is that one in a thousand makes it to production. And even if a mine does start producing, there is a constant worry about the price of what they're mining. And metal prices are notoriously volatile. Rawl says it could be years before cobalt prices rebound. Or it could happen next week. That is what Bryce Crocker is hoping for. I'm up at the mine today. I just came out from underground. Crocker is still actively tending his mine, talking to companies and potential investors, trying to get an infusion of cash. And the U.S. government has kicked in some money. We're very confident in the longer term. Now it's a question of maintaining forward momentum. Crocker believes the markets will catch up with the political realities. And the second they do, he plans to recut that ribbon and start digging. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the Supreme Court has agreed to review a lower court decision that would make the commonly used abortion pill mifepristone less accessible. 
Sunny, windy, and upper 30s today. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight, and skies will be mostly clear. Sunny for our Friday tomorrow, and it'll warm back up to the low 50s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Conservatory Prep School, open to students under 18. Enroll in spring music classes and ensembles today at necmusic.edu prep. And Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals will pay a local competitor up to $100 million for the technology behind its newly approved sickle cell treatment. The licensing deal was struck between Vertex and Cambridge-based Editas Medicine. Editas says some of the money will go to the Broad Institute and Harvard, which helped develop the technology behind the treatment. Framingham-based Amoresco will help bring more clean energy to Hawaii. The company was selected to build two clean energy projects on the island of Oahu. The projects are meant to further support Hawaii's pathway to energy independence. An iconic Connecticut pizza shop will open its first location in Massachusetts today. Sally's of Beats will open in Woburn. Sally's often tops the list of best pizzas in the country. A second location is also coming soon to Boston's Seaport District. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Today in Atlanta, a federal appeals court hears arguments over a police training center. Opponents want to put this project's future on the ballot for voters to decide. They collected petitions to get the project on the ballot and gave 16 boxes full of them to the city. The city says this is not an action you can put to a vote this way. And a court now has to decide on that as well as on the process of collecting petitions. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler is covering this complicated story. Stephen, good morning. Good morning. I say complicated, but there is one basic issue here, which is yes or no on this police training facility. Is that right? Well, you know, it's been controversial for several years. The city of Atlanta is building this $90 million training space for police, fire, other first responders just outside city limits. Officials say the current training space is outdated and better training cuts down on bad policing. Mm -hmm. Now, protests have been going on for a couple of years. I mean, just last month, police used tear gas and flashbang grenades to stop a march to the site. More than 60 protesters have been charged under Georgia's anti-racketeering law for trying to stop construction. And 
One protester was fatally shot by state troopers earlier in the year during an attempt to clear the site of people who are camping there to try to stop construction progress. Steve, opponents say the plan is increasing militarization of law enforcement. It's being built in this forested area that will be environmentally harmful, and it was all decided without public input or approval. So activists launched this effort to get enough Atlanta voters to sign a petition that in turn would ask residents to vote on canceling the city's lease with the private Atlanta and a police foundation to build and run this massive complex. How did all of that then end up in front of the courts? Well, all this time, the city says the petition doesn't count and can't count because it would violate state law and illegally have them cancel a contract. Hmm. Beyond that, there was a case earlier this year where a federal judge gave more time for people to collect petition signatures and also said the people collecting them don't need to be City of Atlanta residents. So today, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta will hear those arguments. There's a number of possible outcomes here, but one of them is that the petition drive itself could be ruled moot. Oh, interesting. Both over questions about whether there should be a ballot measure at all and over questions about whether signatures were legitimately gathered and whether they add up to the right number of signatures. Now, we don't actually know uh, an official tally of signatures because although the city has put out images of the 16 boxes, it hasn't counted, it hasn't validated, uh, but you've been able to look at them. Is that right? Yeah. So we counted the total number of signatures submitted. It's about 108,000 in total. To get on the ballot, organizers need about 58,000 valid Atlanta voters, almost 54%. Uh, validating that would take a very, very long time. So I called up my friends at the Associated Press, me at GPB, WABE, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and we spent weeks looking at a random sample of 1,000 entries. We looked at names and addresses people wrote down, checked them against the voter registration database, and found just under half of our sample are eligible Atlanta voters. A small number might be eligible, but we need more info to be sure. Now, the share of our sample is just under that target sample, but since it is a sample, Steve, remember, possible that counting all 108,000 names could get them across the finish line with enough names if they even get counted. Okay, so your reporting has revealed some question about whether this petition drive would succeed even if it is allowed. Stephen, thanks for the insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday morning on WBUR. Coming up 820 on Morning Edition, NPR and Columbia Journalism investigations have found that prosecutors in Ohio violated legal standards related to defendants' civil rights in order to get convictions. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Babson, top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture, and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at wbur.org legacy. As Hanukkah comes to a close, we talk with a rabbi about the symbolism of the holiday, finding peace and comfort in difficult times on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The House is formally authorizing an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, who calls the move a baseless political stunt. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is traveling to Israel today to encourage peace talks between the country and Hamas. And the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that challenges access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Barely Read Books of Sudbury, proudly sponsoring WBUR's reading of A Christmas Carol to benefit Rosie's Place. Rare books for gifts at barelyreadbooks.com. It'll be windy and only in the upper 30s today under clear skies. It's 28 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. The mayor of Denver, Colorado, campaigned on a pledge to get homeless people off the streets. That is now harder because of something that has happened since. More than 30,000 migrants arrived in Denver in a single year. Most came from the southern border, and many live on the streets. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty reports. It's late November, and Mayor Mike Johnston showed up late to this community meeting in a rec center gym. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to be respectful. We're going to be respectful. President Biden was in town, and the mayor was asking for help. The most dangerous thing we can do for your neighborhood and for the city and county of Denver is keep doing what we've been doing the last five years. It is keep 2,000 people in unsanctioned, unstaffed, unsupervised, unsafe encampments all around the city. By the year's end, Johnston's pledged to move 1,000 homeless locals off sidewalks and into supervised tiny home villages and hotels. Then maybe social workers can connect them with housing. He declared a state of emergency over homelessness on his first day in office. But another emergency arrived this past year. We do have a parallel crisis we're managing right now around newcomers that have arrived at the city in the form of migrants. We have right now about more than 2,000 people who are in shelter. A few weeks earlier, inside a hotel that the city turned into a shelter in 2020, Johnston is talking to a crowd of men, women, and children who'd walked for months to leave places like Venezuela and Colombia. The city allowed them to stay here temporarily. Many moved into tents outside. I can't fix all the problems right now, he tells them. Johnston's been getting heat over this crisis for weeks particularly the dozens of children sleeping out in the cold. Their presence shocked residents, turning some into activists. This meeting is about pushing people towards work authorization. One of the things we found when I went to the White House and talked to people there is that we have uh, significant numbers of people who have arrived in Denver who are eligible for work authorization and don't know it. If people get jobs, he says, they can figure out the rest. It's a strategy that reveals how little Johnston has to offer these people. The city spent millions of dollars on this crisis, but people keep coming. We know that there are not going to be enough hotel rooms for us to put everyone up indefinitely. Hennessy's Daniel Perez from Venezuela met Johnston during his visit with her mother and kids. They stayed in this motel before they moved into a tent outside. A snowstorm forced her father into the hospital. We just have to wait and continue sleeping on the streets, she says, to see what the mayor is going to do for us. At least they're trying to help us, Perez says. The cold is tremendous. An army of moms organized on Facebook have been scrambling to provide clothes and food for families like hers. The city allowed parents with kids back into hotels after temperatures dropped. And these moms sounded the alarm. Tensions have been high over Johnston's handling of migrants and his plans to shelter unhoused locals across town. In a recent meeting, Denver City Council members joined the chorus of critics. 
Council President Jamie Torres. What became part of that conversation was a boil over of incidents happening within districts around migrants, but then overall about how the emergency responses are being handled. Denver failed to solidify a real plan for migrants when arrivals dropped significantly last summer, she said, before Johnston took office. And after he did, the city wasn't ready when numbers shot up again. It's still being treated with panic and reaction. Busloads of migrants now arrive every day. Texas's governor, Greg Abbott, brags that he sent almost 8,000 people here. But Denver officials say they would still end up on the city streets without any political stunts. Torres says, like regular homelessness, this is a long-term issue, and the city needs to move beyond panic. They've got to get organized. I think there are some within the administration who have been trying to do that. We will stay at it day in and day out with your feedback and partnership until we succeed. So thank you all so much for being here tonight. The mayor set aside hundreds of millions of dollars to address homelessness and housing insecurity in his first budget. And he's hoping for federal help to fund migrant-specific services. But these crises are colliding, and he knows he needs to nail solutions to both. They have different needs, different histories, but they are right now getting commingled because the, the numbers are so overwhelming. So we think the ability to stand up successful programs for each of them increases our success at serving both of them. In an expensive housing market flooded by need, Thousands of people are hoping he'll come through with safe, warm places for them to rest. Everyone is waiting to see what happens next. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. When the Seattle Seahawks take on the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL on Monday night, keep an eye on the end zone. If Seahawks receiver DK Metcalf scores, he plans to celebrate using American Sign Language. He's one of many people, my oldest daughter among them, who can hear but have been learning ASL. Well, I took it uh, one course in uh, college. Um, my ASL teacher, Ms. Bryant, was very cool, and I enjoyed the class. So I always try to exercise my mind or try to learn something new. Now I figured, let's take it a step further. So after that college course, Metcalf found a new teacher. His name's Daryl Utley from Tennessee. So it's just been you know, very fun just to see you know, him smiling every time we interact or anytime I, I know something that, uh, you know, he signs to me. The teacher, Mr. Utley, spoke with NPR through a certified ASL interpreter who happens to be his big brother, Barry. I'm actually quite impressed <laughs> with DK. And really, in general, many students who come to this point where they want to take these classes and sessions they do have a commitment, a passion, and a dedication, and DK is no different. Utley is an instructor with the Sign Language Center and says Metcalf brings his own style to ASL. American Sign Language, it's a visual language, and as such, you can see a lot of personality come through different signers using the language. So, yes, he definitely has his own swag and his own flair. Metcalf, the NFL player, jokes that using ASL helps him avoid being flagged by referees for trash talk. <laughs> After scoring a touchdown against the L.A. Rams, Kalo Witherspoon, who wears the number 44, Metcalf signed, 44 is my son, to Utley. That's okay. A lot of hearing people, when they want to learn sign language, they're like, hey, how do we sign the inappropriate words? How do we sign, you know, this swear word or this cuss word? But... You know, he's not even doing that per se. He's using some different forms of the language to send a message on his own. So I don't see it as inappropriate. And Utley praises Metcalf for learning from someone who is deaf. Me being a deaf person, sharing my language and my culture, he's taking that and he's cherishing what he's learning. So there's a lot of, uh, as we call it within the community, deaf gain 
um, as some advantages within our community to see that happen to see a hearing person of his stature use American Sign Language in his platform is amazing. Daryl Utley, as interpreted by his brother, Barry. Daryl has an invitation to the game when DK Metcalf travels with Seattle later this month to play the Tennessee Titans. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com And Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Exploring, understanding, and protecting our ocean starts with you. Join a team dedicated to advancing science and technology for the global good. Discover career opportunities in your field at whoi.edu slash team. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. House approves an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, who called the move a baseless political stunt. It's Thursday, December 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court says it'll hear a case that might determine the accessibility of a commonly used abortion pill. Were the Supreme Court to tighten those rules on mifepristone, it would be a huge blow for pro-abortion rights groups. Also, an investigation by NPR and the Columbia Journalism School reveals widespread misconduct by prosecutors in Ohio and this hour. It's nice to be able to create a space where you're like able to talk a little bit more about like the specifics of like your queer experience and show that like queer people can be funny. We visit a queer comedy showcase trying to make Boston's comedy scene more inclusive. Sunny and in upper 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. European Union leaders are meeting in Brussels over the next two days. They're deciding whether to grant Ukraine more than $50 billion in new aid and whether to open membership negotiations with Ukrainian officials. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. The EU has already approved Ukraine as a candidate for membership. Now it wants to start negotiations for the country's entry into the 27-member bloc. Ivana Klempusch-Tinsadze, who leads the Ukrainian Parliament's Committee on European Integration, says Ukraine has pushed through a flurry of reforms to fulfill EU requirements. Actually, Ukraine has over-delivered. We have shown our readiness and willingness to reach the goal which is strategic for the country. The leaders of all member nations must approve the new aid and the opening of negotiations. The Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has said he wants to veto both. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kiev. The House of Representatives has voted on party lines to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan says Republicans are ready to investigate the president. When a majority of the House goes on record in support of an official impeachment inquiry uh, with the power that resides solely in the House of Representatives, this impeachment power, I think that sends a message. But Republicans have never presented clear evidence of any wrongdoing by Biden. The White House counsel spokesman, Ian Sams, says they've already had months to investigate the president. They've gotten 100,000 pages of documents. They've interviewed witnesses for 40 hours. 
And guess what? They've come up with not a single shred of evidence of any wrongdoing of any kind by President Biden. He spoke to CNN. President Biden slammed the inquiry vote as a baseless political stunt. A former lawyer to former President Donald Trump will take the witness stand today in the penalty phase of his defamation trial. Rudy Giuliani could be ordered to compensate two former election workers after falsely insisting they changed 2020 votes in Georgia. NPR's Miles Parks has more. Over the past two days, jurors heard from the two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Wandra Shea Moss. After voting stopped in 2020, Giuliani falsely claimed the mother and daughter helped steal the 2020 election by smuggling in ballots and scanning them multiple times. On the stand, Freeman detailed how those lies led her to receive hundreds of racist threats on every electronic platform she had. One person wrote to her through a business website saying they hoped to hear her next snap. The two women are seeking tens of millions of dollars in damages from Giuliani, who has already admitted the accusations he made against them in 2020 were false. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts is reassuring people that medication abortion is still available in the state for now. The U.S. Supreme Court announced yesterday it would review a lower court's decision that could place restrictions on mifepristone. That's one of two drugs used for the procedure. It was approved by the FDA in 2000. Dominique Lee is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Massachusetts. The court should reject this politically motivated effort to interfere with the FDA's approval process that is based on science and evidence. We will continue to do what we are doing here in Massachusetts, which is making sure we're protecting and expanding access to medication abortion. Earlier this year, Governor Healy directed health care providers to stockpile the drug in case it's outlawed. Boston City Councilors want non-citizens to be able to vote in municipal elections. They voted yesterday to ask state legislators to approve that idea. More now from WBUR, Simone Rios. Outgoing Councilor Kendra Lara filed the petition to get non-citizens the right to vote in Boston elections. Lara told the story of her father, a city resident of 30 years, who couldn't vote for her when she ran for the council. And his story is the story of thousands of legal residents in the city of Boston who work, pay taxes, raise their children, and participate in every way in strengthening the fabric of our city, yet cannot cast their ballot for the representatives who are making decisions about their daily lives. The non-citizen voting plan is far from taking effect. It'll require sign-off by the mayor, the legislature, and ultimately the governor. Newton, Somerville, and Cambridge have recently sent similar measures to the State House. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. A public wake will be held today for the Waltham police officer killed at a work site. Officer Paul Tracy died last week when a driver struck him and several national grid workers. His funeral will be held tomorrow. Services will be held this weekend for Roderick Jackson, the national grid worker who also died. The driver, accused of killing the two, remains in custody. He's pleaded not guilty. Provincetown is joining a small list of Massachusetts communities that have decriminalized psychedelic plants. Police say they will no longer prioritize cases involving so-called magic mushrooms in that community. Supporters of the move say it could help people dealing with addiction. Psilocybin is also decriminalized in Somerville, Cambridge, and Salem. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic, fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. The Bruins lost to the Devils 2-1 to in overtime last night in New Jersey. The Bees will visit the New York Islanders tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will take on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-30s, clear overnight with a low in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. Sunny again on Saturday and in the upper 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case about an abortion pill. The court says it will review lower court decisions that would make it harder to get mefepristone next year. Let's talk about this with Sarah Varney, who is a journalist who covers reproductive rights. Sarah, good morning. Good morning. What's at issue here? So just to walk through what's happened so far, there was a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas. He was appointed by former President Trump, and he actually revoked the approval of Mifepristone entirely. Then that decision was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which is in New Orleans, and that court didn't agree with that sweeping decision. But it did agree with a group of anti-abortion organizations that argued the FDA's approval process of mifepristone was flawed and that the FDA erred when it made the drug more widely available, including through telemedicine and through the mail. So yesterday, the Supreme Court justices agreed to take up an appeal to that decision from the company that makes mifepristone and the Biden administration. And they're asking the Supreme Court to reverse that ruling by the Fifth Circuit. Well, this is really interesting. So it's not just a yes-no decision on whether the FDA properly approve this pill. There are also questions about how it's accessible and a variety of FDA choices over a variety of years. So how could access to the pill be affected? Sure. Well, you know, just to start, abortion pills account for more than half of all abortions in this country, and they're really used also by OBGYNs to manage early miscarriages, so they're hugely important. If the Supreme Court upholds the appellate ruling by the Fifth Circuit, then patients would not be able to get mifepristone through the mail, even if they live in states like Massachusetts or California where abortion is legal. They would have to make three separate appointments in person with a doctor. This is not currently required. And instead of being able to use mifepristone into the 10th week of pregnancy, patients could only use it until seven weeks. This doesn't mean medication abortion would become entirely unavailable. Clinics and physicians and telemedicine services could still prescribe a drug called misoprostol. That's usually taken with mifepristone, but it can also be taken safely and effectively on its own. And just to note that misoprostol was actually approved by the FDA in 1988, so quite a long time ago, to treat gastric ulcers. Um, the anti-abortion groups, we just haven't seen them target that approval process yet. Yet, you say. Now, since this is all about FDA approval and whether it was proper, what does this case mean for the FDA? Yeah, this is a really unusual case. Um, you know, the FDA approved this medication more than two decades ago. More than five million people in the U.S. have used it safely. It's approved for use around the world. Um, and this case has attracted a lot of attention from FDA scholars. You know, some who support abortion rights, others do not. 
they actually filed an amicus brief defending the FDA's rigorous drug approval process. And they argued that if religious groups or private individuals can challenge, you know, each drug that the FDA reviews, that it really undermines the entire FDA regulatory authority. And it's going to throw the pharmaceutical industry and really the country's regulation of drugs just into disarray. Okay. So the court now hearing a case that would go all the way into 2024, which happens to be an election year. Sarah Varney, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Steve. The United Nations Children's Fund, also known as UNICEF, has an assessment of the life and death of children in Gaza. Hamas came out of Gaza on October 7th, killing some children and taking others hostage. Now Israel's military response has destroyed much of Gaza and the people killed include more than 5,000 children, according to Palestinian health authorities, which is why UNICEF now describes the Gaza Strip as the most dangerous place in the world for children. James Elder is a UNICEF spokesperson who has visited Gaza and is now in London. Welcome to the program, sir. Thanks so much, Steve. Let me just uh, invite you to to uh, prove that case. More dangerous than Ukraine for children? More dangerous than Syria for children? Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately it is. If we look at two factors, one is just the sheer number, as you say, thousands and thousands of children killed in a very short space of time. But also what that means is a percentage of casualties. We're just above 40% of all people killed or injured being children. That's twice as much as you would see even from a horror, horror in, say, Syria. Um, and, and same with Ukraine, though the numbers of children killed here are, are much, much more extensive than what what is happening in Ukraine, not to compare crises, but when we we do 40%. We've not really seen that in modern history. It just speaks of the density of populations. It speaks to the, the indiscriminate attacks. And Steve, it speaks to the idea that there is literally nowhere safe for these families to go. I guess it also speaks to the demographics too, right? Because it's a very young population. If, if a bomb is going to fall in a neighborhood, a very large number of the people underneath it will be kids. Well, particularly when the, the, you know, the indiscriminate nature and also the proportionality, <clears throat> Steve, seems to have gone out the window. That's a very important fact that, that now versus previous conflicts, it does seem that if there is a, tar a military target in, a, in an apartment building, which may be housing seven families and 65 people, then that whole building um, is being leveled. So it speaks to all those factors. But yes, half the population being children. And when I was in Gaza to, to meet so many of those, to see the kids who learn perfect English or electrical engineering off the internet. It's a very impressive, youthful market. And it's, you know, it's sort of the demographically would be the envy of aging populations if, of course, they're given the right skills as opposed to a nation or a, a, an entire country, entire group of children who are traumatized, all of them, pretty much everyone, unfortunately, Steve. Now, uh, Mr. Elder, you've twice used the word indiscriminate, indiscriminate Israeli attacks. President Biden has been very supportive of Israel, is using the same word this week to describe those attacks. Israel, of course, describes this somewhat differently. They've been very frank. They've been very frank on this program saying that civilians are going to be killed uh, and that that is necessary in their view to get at Hamas, which hides among civilians. What do you make of the Israeli defense? Unfortunately, just what I saw on the ground, Steve, in my 20 years with UNICEF, I've never seen the sheer number of children with wounds of war. And a wound of war is not singular. It may, it's shrapnel, and that's often ripping through a body. Uh, shrapnel, of course, what damage it does to the eyes. It's burns, horrendous burns on children, Steve, and, and, and broken bones. So the sheer number of, of children and where they were, where they were seeking refuge, the, the incredible number of children I met on hospital stretchers with those kinds of injuries who had not yet been told 
as well that their mother and father had been killed. They hadn't quite captured that that their life was even worse than, than they imagined. So I think whichever way we look at this, and one of the things UNICEF has said from day dot, Steve, is let's get these Israeli children home, these hostages who are still there, tormented, their families are tormented. There are so many atrocious acts going on. But equally, the destruction of Gaza, which is what we're seeing, two-thirds of homes damaged, and this this intense killing of children is simply not going to bring peace or safety to the region. That is something that we are seeing more polarization, more anger, more frustration. We're getting further away from a solution of peace for the children of Gaza, the West Bank, Israel, across the region. Since you mentioned the Israeli hostages, let's put another Israeli argument to you. You will hear Israelis and their supporters essentially say when you talk too much about civilian casualties in Gaza, you're just kind of doing the work of Hamas. You're making it easier for Israel to be forced to push to to back off Hamas. How would you answer that claim? A child is a child. And, and when you see this, the sheer scope of, of children being killed, then then, then you, to, to think that by having five, 6,000 children now killed is in any way going to solve this problem, to think that, the, that to, to entirely disregard the safety of those children will, will in any way get us to a place, a, a, a better place for children. Remembering there's a two parts to this as well. And one, I think, speaks to the disregard. We talk of indiscriminate. I would go a step further and talk of disregard for children, Steve. The safe zones that hundreds of thousands of people are being pushed to, safe, yes, means free from bombardment. Legally safe also means the responsibility on Israel to make sure there is life-saving things there, water, sanitation, and food. Those things are not just lacking, they are absent. So now as the rain hit, as doctors have warned, we have now not only bombardment from the sky, but a very real threat of death on the ground through disease. If those safe zones had been made safe, then we would not talk in such, in such candid fashion about a disregard for children. James Elder is a spokesperson for UNICEF. He joined us from London about the UNICEF assessment that Gaza is the most dangerous place in the world for children. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Steve. For analysis and differing views on the conflict, you can visit npr.org slash Middle East. Okay, this is a week for a cosmic spectacle. The Geminid meteor shower has been lighting up the night skies. At its peak, which continues through tonight, stargazers can see dozens of shooting stars each hour. While most meteor showers are made up of icy and dusty comet particles, Kelly Beatty at Sky and Telescope magazine tells WBUR's Here and Now that Geminids are different. This is due to an asteroid called Phaethon, which circles the sun very tightly, comes as close as 13 million miles to the sun, gets to 1,300 degrees on its surface. That sounds hot. Described by NASA as the most reliable meteor shower of the year, the Geminid shower gets its name from the constellation Gemini, where the meteors first appear. Little particles are being blasted off by sunlight, and it's those little particles spread along its orbit that we plow through every December. They create a streak that's bright enough to actually trigger a color response in our eye. But if it gets bright enough, then we can see a bright color and, and different colors in these meteors. I love that perspective. It's not that they're falling on us. We are plowing through them as the Earth orbits the sun, moving around, it passes through this trail of asteroid debris where they burn up on contact with our atmosphere. 20 miles a second, these particles oh, are hitting our atmosphere. And so they, they hit very high up, you know, 80 miles up, 60, 80 miles, and they create a superheated white streak in the atmosphere. You can see the Geminid display through December 24th. 
Starting around 9 or 10 at night, here's a pro tip. Get the best view after midnight and turn toward a patch of dark sky. That could be straight up. It could be, you know, to the south, wherever it's darkest. Get away from city lights. Turn off the porch light. Let your eyes get adjusted to the dark. And you might see up to one meteor per minute. NASA says that at its peak, and again, that continues tonight, the Geminid meteor shower delivers as many as 120 shooting stars per hour. Delivered by the universe, a show that's free. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, EU leaders meeting in Brussels are considering new funding for Ukraine's war against Russia and Ukraine's membership in the EU. We'll hear why Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban is playing a big role in the discussions. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at TheMusicEmporium.com. I'm Scott Tong. Arlington National Cemetery plans to remove a mammoth Confederate monument. The cemetery calls the structure a mythologized version of the Confederacy. It touches upon virtually every lost cause theme, every central element of the lost cause narrative. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. The House of Representatives has voted along party lines to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden as House Republicans intensify the investigation they opened earlier this year. The president calls it a political stunt. Followed developments today on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today will have highs only in the upper 30s. There might be some gusty winds. Still mostly clear tonight. Temperatures will be in the upper 20s. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 50s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimsfoundation.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. About 100 prosecuting attorneys in Ohio have pursued criminal convictions by violating the standards meant to preserve a defendant's civil rights. An investigation by NPR and Columbia Journalism Investigations found that some of those prosecutors broke the rules more than once, and no prosecutor was disciplined. Here's NPR investigative correspondent Cheryl W. Thompson. Our second case this morning is 2021-215, the state of Ohio versus Ernie E. Haynes. 
Ernie Haynes still shudders when he thinks about those days in court, standing before a judge charged with kidnapping his own grandchildren. You'd think it'd get easier when, when you talk about it, but they don't. Haynes' run-in with the law began in 2017 when his daughter died from a drug overdose two weeks before Christmas. The court gave custody of her three boys to their biological father, a decision Haynes disagreed with. He says the man struggled with drug addiction and he thought the children would be better off with him and his wife. So he rounded them up and drove to a relative's house in another town for the holidays. As Haynes was packing up his car to return home to the Toledo area, police arrested him. The charges? Six counts of abduction, two for each child. The grandfather would spend the next five years fighting to clear his name. I didn't do anything wrong. I was doing, I mean, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with the kids? What Haynes didn't know was that he was up against an overly eager assistant prosecutor with a track record of misleading juries, withholding evidence, and violating other legal standards, all to win convictions. In the Haynes case, he misstated the burden of proof in his closing arguments. That prosecutor, Thomas Matuzak, is one of about a hundred in Ohio who the courts found violated legal standards meant to protect a defendant's civil rights in criminal trials. Good morning. My name is Tom Matuzak. I represent the state of Ohio in this matter. He's one of 13 who violated standards more than once during a four-year period. None was sanctioned by the state Supreme Court. Two are now judges. Julia Bates says that's not how the system is supposed to work. Winning at all costs isn't the answer. We have to defend not just the victims, but we defend the defendants too because they're part of the system. We, you know, we have to make sure that their rights are not trampled in the process. Bates is the prosecutor for Lucas County, home to Toledo. She also was Matuzak's boss. She remembers him as a good prosecutor, but someone who had to be reined in more than once. He was very passionate and he was very committed, but sometimes... He went a little far, and so, you know, we had to, you know, sometimes put a little bit of a muzzle on him. In a phone interview with NPR, Matuzak insisted that he did nothing wrong in the Haynes case or the six others the higher courts have admonished him for during his career. Bennett Gershman is a former prosecutor who now teaches at Pace University Law School in New York. It's shocking. It mirrors rather indifferent, complacent attitude of disciplinary bias. He called the pattern in Ohio a microcosm of the criminal justice system across the country. Once you start focusing on these prosecutors, you know, you can learn a lot about the prosecutorial psychology mentality and why prosecutors engage in unethical behavior and why they uh, consistently get away with it. You'll find other jurisdictions in America which are equally shocking. Joseph Caligari is the disciplinary counsel for the state of Ohio. I think there's this perception that, you know, prosecutors do no wrong. His office investigates allegations of prosecutorial misconduct and files complaints with the Ohio Board of Professional Conduct. The former prosecutor says it's imperative that officials hold prosecutors accountable. Most of prosecutors are extremely ethical, but the stakes are so much higher that you can't tolerate a few bad ones. You've got to try and weed those out. Appellate judges have handed down numerous improper conduct rulings in Matuzak's criminal cases. Some of his bosses, elected prosecutors like Paul Dobson of Wood County, knew about them. There's no doubt that um, 
he drew more allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. Um, I don't agree with all of the, the rulings of the court. I do agree with some of them. Dobson says he advised Matuzak to be mindful and meticulous when trying cases to avoid allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. We were engaged in conversations of saying, look, you now have to draw back even farther than somebody else would to stop those kind of allegations, to get the court to to recognize that you're not just going to ignore what they're saying and, and walk over the line. By the time the Haynes case went to trial, appellate judges had already found that Matuzak had acted improperly twice. Matthew Rieger was the trial court judge in the Haynes kidnapping case. I never understood why this case had to be prosecuted. I was a prosecutor for 20 years, and my approach to prosecution was kind of goal-oriented. Okay, what are we trying to achieve? This was a grandfather who, it appears, was trying to protect his grandchildren. Still, jurors found Haynes guilty of three felony counts of abduction and sentenced him to a year's probation. On appeal, he claimed that Matuzak had violated his constitutional rights. More than a year later, the court found Matuzak's closing arguments were erroneous, but not egregious enough to have affected the trial's outcome. Last December, the Ohio Supreme Court vacated Haynes' conviction on unrelated grounds. You know, when I was so relieved, it was like, well, I'm not a felon now. For Haynes, he says he just wants to move on. Matuzak left the Wood County Prosecutor's Office in 2020 and now tries criminal cases in Ottawa County, about 30 miles away. Since arriving there, he has racked up another two rulings of improper conduct, raising his total to seven. Cheryl W. Thompson, NPR News. That story was reported in collaboration with WVXU in Cincinnati and the Ohio Newsroom. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. We'll spend a night at Fruits by the Foot, a queer comedy showcase that's trying to make Boston's comedy scene more inclusive. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org and MFA Boston, presenting Fashion by Sargent, the exhibition the Boston Globe calls unapologetically gorgeous. Closes January 15th. Tickets at mfa.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The House has voted along party lines to authorize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. GOP lawmakers have been investigating the foreign business dealings of the president's son, Hunter Biden, and whether the president improperly benefited from them. NPR's Mara Liason says the president is denouncing the inquiry. 
In a statement, President Biden called the impeachment vote a baseless political stunt and said instead of funding Ukraine's fight against Russia or Israel's fight against terrorists or more security for the U.S. southern border, Republicans are leaving town for a month. Republicans say that Biden and his family engaged in influence peddling and took payments from foreign adversaries, but so far they have not presented any clear evidence to back up those allegations. Mara Lyason, NPR News, Washington. Russian President Vladimir Putin says there will be no peace in Ukraine until Moscow's invasion achieves its goals. Speaking at his traditional end-of-year news conference today, Putin said those objectives have not changed nearly 22 months into the war. Putin also said Moscow is engaged in what he called difficult talks with the U.S. about the potential release of Americans Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter arrested in March on charges of espionage. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Contractors say they need more time to fix the narrow rails on the new Green Line extension. This is the second time the group has asked for more time to fix the tracks between Leachmere and Medford Tufts. The project was initially expected to take only two weeks. T officials say work on the project may continue into next year. That work is causing that section of the Green Line to shut down each night this week, beginning at 845. A new survey finds children in Massachusetts with behavioral health needs can wait up to six months for services. The Association for Behavioral Health Care represents providers of services to children. President and CEO Lydia Conley says the number of children waiting for some services has increased 41 percent since last year. She says public and private insurance reimbursements are the major cause. These types of services are delivered in the home and with the entire family system, and so it's challenging and unique work. And so it takes a special kind of individual that likes to do that work, and you need to pay a premium in order to get individuals that are willing to take on that work. Conley is calling on state lawmakers to act to ease the backlog. A hearing today will decide if Boston forfeited its right to a trial in a wrongful death case. It comes as the city admits it failed to turn over evidence in the case of 31-year-old Terrence Coleman. Police shot and killed Coleman, who was black, during a mental health check in 2016. A judge will decide if the city will face any sanctions, including if it is liable for Coleman's death. It is 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kaiba providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot com. The Bruins lost an overtime matchup against the Devils last night. They fell in New Jersey 2-1. to one. The Bees will visit the New York Islanders tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Cleveland Cavaliers. Boston won when the teams met on Tuesday. Windy with highs only in the upper 30s today, but it'll be sunny, mostly clear in upper 20s tonight, then a sunny Friday with a warm-up to highs in the low 50s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, 
committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. On a Thursday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. A two-day summit that begins today in Brussels, Belgium, focuses on Ukraine. Members of the European Union face big decisions on aid for Ukraine and EU membership for the country. All 27 member nations would have to agree on any action, and at least one leader says Ukraine is not their problem. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is in Kyiv. Hey there, Joanna. Hey, Steve. How are Ukrainians where you are viewing this meeting that does not include them but is all about them? So, Steve, everyone I speak to in Ukraine is worried that the country is going to run out of money next year and won't be able to keep fighting off Russian forces. Uh, In the U.S., congressional Republicans are blocking new aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So today, the EU, Ukraine's other major ally, it's considering a $54 billion package of military and economic funding uh, for the country, and that's a lifeline. Uh, EU leaders are also talking about Ukraine's bid for EU membership, and that's been a major goal of Ukraine for years. Ukrainians see their future as a Western-style liberal democracy. And you'll remember that a decade ago, Ukrainians brought down a president who tried to move the country closer to Russia. Yeah, that's part of the conflict here is is Mm -hmm. where does Ukraine lean and whose orbit is Ukraine? But where does their application to join the EU stand? So the EU has already granted Ukraine candidate status, but the next step is to authorize membership negotiations. I spoke about this with Ivana Klempusztynsadze. She's a member of Ukraine's parliament and leads the Committee on Ukraine's Integration into the EU. She told me that the Russian invasion has not stopped Ukraine from passing reforms which are needed to fulfill EU requirements for membership. We are working so hard in order to deliver. We are working on the backdrop of the most brutal war that is happening on this continent since the Second World War. And I think that that has to receive its recognition in the EU. And for that to happen, the leaders of all EU member nations must agree. And right now, Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, he's threatening to veto both the aid and the opening of membership negotiations. Okay, a man seen as an illiberal leader of Hungary Mm -hmm. who's made the country less democratic. Why is he Mm -hmm. against Ukraine? Well, Viktor Orban has said that he believes Ukraine is a hopelessly corrupt country that has no place in the EU. And he has also he has also said that sending military aid to Ukraine only prolongs this war, the implication being that Ukraine should accept losing the territory it's lost to Russia. Uh, Orban's position makes sense when you know a little bit more about him. He is considered the Kremlin's closest ally in the EU. And Orban has clashed repeatedly with EU leadership who say his government doesn't protect rule of law and and human rights. And as a result, the EU withheld more than $22 billion in development funds from Hungary. But late last night, the EU released about half of that money in the hopes Orban might at least approve the aid package to Ukraine. Ah, well, all politics is local, so the money goes (laughs) to his locality. But what happens if the membership talks are delayed? So it would be a major blow because this is a very sensitive and scary time for Ukraine, a time when the country's two most important allies, the United States and the European Union, appear to be wavering. And and, and Ivana Klempusztynsadze, the lawmaker working on Ukraine's European integration, she says Russia is watching closely. 
the stakes are extremely high, not exclusively for the Ukrainian people. It's not only for us having this ray of light at the end of the tunnel. It is about rule of law, prosperity, democracy, peace and security. She says that if the EU hesitates on Ukraine, the Kremlin will just sense weakness. NPR's Joanna Kikissis, thanks. You're welcome. Okay, after a 10-week fraud trial where Donald Trump and his three oldest children testified in public for the first time ever, well, testimony's over. An assistant attorney general said the people have rested, and soon the case goes to a judge. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been covering the case and joins us now. Andrea, good morning. Good morning. What's at stake here? So in this trial... Even before testimony began, the judge ruled in favor of the New York Attorney General in the first claim of her case that the Trumps had committed persistent and repeated fraud. And the judge ordered the Trumps to start turning over their business certificates in preparation for a possible dissolution of the company. Hmm. That part's been put on hold. At one point in the trial, the judge said, I've already decided these were ill-gotten gains. So the question is, by how much will he order the Trumps to pay back the state? Okay, so if it's already decided that they did the thing that they're accused of, why did they go on with 10 weeks of testimony? So the judge only ruled on one of seven counts, and there was a lot more to learn. First, from the employees, appraisers, and accountants, who really divulged the details of all this. So let's take the value of the triplex at Trump Tower, which Trump said was three times as big as it really was. Here's how it worked. Trump's chief financial officer told a broker that worked for the Trumps that the apartment was 30,000 square feet instead of 10,000. So the broker came up with a value that was three times bigger than it should have been. And then that false value was attributed back to the broker. So when the Trumps were caught lying by Forbes about the value of the triplex, what happened is Trump's employees pumped up the value of another property at 40 Wall Street to make up the difference in the lowered value on the statement of financial condition. This was what former Trump corporate vice president Michael Cohen testified was called reverse engineering of the numbers. And I guess we'll remind people that this matters not just because you're bragging, but because you may borrow money on the value of properties or do any number of other things based on the value of your properties. And that's what prosecutors describe as fraud or what the court, rather the people, so to speak, the government describes as fraud. What did the former president's testimony teach us, if anything? Well, one of the things that we learned is that he actually admitted that he was in charge of those statements of financial condition that the judge had found were fraudulent. So even though he was somebody himself who'd been in real estate all his life, he said, well, maybe this was because the broker mistakenly included the roof or the elevator shafts. Meanwhile, Trump's sons, Don Jr. and Eric, who really were in charge of the company when, when Trump took over the White House, said, well, it wasn't us. It was our lawyers. It was our accountants. And then there was Ivanka Trump, who is not a defendant, but who acknowledged sending emails and letters that really laid out how, based on these fraudulent statements, the Trumps were able to get loan rates maybe around 2%, when out in the market, they were about 30%. Wow. Okay, that's a difference. So very briefly, what is the defense case here? So a big part of what the Trumps have said is no one was harmed, a major bank involved, said it was seeking out Trump's business. One executive called it whale hunting. And inside and outside the courtroom, the Trumps have accused the AG and the judge of bias. They've made it very clear they will appeal. 
But in any event, we should see a verdict from the judge in January after we get some closing briefs and arguments. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how to turn stress and panic over finances into advantages. Sunny, windy, and upper 30s today. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight, and skies will be mostly clear. Sunny for our Friday tomorrow, and it'll warm back up to the low 50s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic, fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. And the ICA have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific is sponsoring a new life sciences incubator in Worcester. Under the deal, Thermo Fisher will provide scientific instruments and research equipment into the Massachusetts Biomedical Initiative. The incubator aims to bolster the life sciences industry outside of Boston and Cambridge. Hundreds of healthcare workers at Upham's Corner Health Center in Dorchester are unionizing. They'll join 1199 SEIU, which is the state's largest healthcare union. Workers say they want a contract that addresses low wages and staffing. Boston-based Alarity Therapeutics is parting ways with its CEO. James Cullum has been with the company for 10 years. The reason behind the change is unclear. Alarity's founder, Thomas Jensen, will take over as CEO on a temporary basis. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. This is W.B. Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Comedy has a long and storied history in Boston, with some big names getting their start at local stand-up stages. But the city's comedy scene doesn't always reflect Boston's diversity. As W.B. Wars' Elijah Nicholson Mesmer reports, an emerging queer comedy showcase is changing that. Alex Heisler, a medical student at Tufts University, is posted up at the entrance of Distraction Brewing in Roslindale ready to start checking people in for the queer comedy show. I am the ticket girl. So well, the ticket girl. She's got a glass of lager, a laptop, and about eight boxes of Fruit by the Foot. A nod to the show's punny name, Fruits by the Foot. Take any Fruits by the Foot that you so desire. Thank you. Her girlfriend, Lizzie Savitz, is in the back of the tap room, setting up mics and light stands with her co-producer, Zach Stewart, for tonight's Fruits by the Foot event. That's pretty good. Now. Yeah. And then just one more. A queer comedy showcase, the two comedians start it, earlier this year. There definitely are a lot of alternative rooms and cool places to do stand-up in Boston, don't get me wrong, but like the institution of stand-up here is very boys clubby. 
Savitz, who made a name for herself performing in comedy clubs around Los Angeles, struggled to find the right venue for her comedy after moving to Boston. Her comedy mentor back in LA offered her some advice. She was like, if you want to find a venue that is perfect for you, make it. You know, like, like make the space that you want to see. You know, don't just wait for the right space. At this sold out show, it's clear this kind of space is in high demand. The room is buzzing as everyone grabs a seat. Beers in one hand, packets of fruit by the foot in the other. All the comedians squeeze together in a hallway next to the stage. Savitz and Stewart are at the front of the group, looking over the crowd. I am a bad gay. Uh, I learned that recently when my boss bought us all free Chick-fil-A. Delicious sandwich, diabolical company. Basing the show's niche appeal on the gender identity and sexual orientation of the comedians performing in it may sound like pigeonholing to some, but for Stewart, who is often the only queer comedian at many stand-up nights, having an audience of allies and other queer people is a freeing experience. A lot of times when we're doing comedy shows like this, we're the only like queer people on a lineup. So I'm like the one person and I'm like, I'm gonna leave that show and I can talk about going up on stage and like being in an orgy for 10 minutes or I can go up on stage and talk about the weather for 10 minutes and everybody's gonna leave and be like, that gay guy was funny. At Fruits by the Foot, they're carving out a space where comedians can be more than a label. It's nice to be able to create a space where you're like able to talk a little bit more about like the specifics of like your queer experience and show that like queer people can be funny. So like we get to kind of build and be more three-dimensional people on stage. Although Fruits by the Foot is a unique addition to the Boston comedy scene, it is also part of a much larger queer comedy boom, according to Marcel Karp, a New York City author who has studied and written about the history of queer comedy. The queer comedy boom is what I identify as a moment in the whole history of comedy, um, which happens in 2017 with like this sort of perfect storm of trans comics, queer comics, non-binary comics, like, you know, it's not just the binary of being straight or gay, it's the whole umbrella of how we identify ourselves as queer. From Saturday Night Live to HBO, recent years have seen queer comics make their way onto some of the biggest comedy stages in the industry. But the rise of social media platforms like TikTok have also allowed comics to find audiences on their own. You don't have to fit into that space. You're making your own space. Like the space is less about like, can I be part of your club? And more of like, check out my club. As Fruits by the Foot nears its first anniversary, Savitz and Stewart are encouraged by how many people continue to check out the showcase. But overall, it's been like pretty awesome to see how many people come out to this and how many people like, this is their queer comedy space. Like they're like, I come to this show. I don't come to a ton of comedy shows because like I know what I'm getting here. And like it's awesome to be able to cultivate that. For queer audiences who often feel like the butt of the joke at other comedy nights, Fruits by the Foot is a rare reprieve in the Boston comedy scene. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Elijah Nicholson-Mesmer. Fruits by the Foot hosts its next show on Saturday night at Distraction Brewing in Roslindale. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll look at why European support for Ukraine against Russia's invasion might be in jeopardy, and a preview of this weekend's upcoming election in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's 8.50.
WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and MITSloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The Republican-led House has formalized an impeachment inquiry into President Biden in a move he calls a, quote, political stunt. Russian President Vladimir Putin says there will be no peace in Ukraine until his goals there are achieved. And Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who is being detained on espionage charges, will remain in a Russian prison until at least the end of January after losing an appeal. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Interest rate cuts are likely, but don't expect one wrapped under the tree this season. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. America's central bankers have left interest rates unchanged. At a news conference yesterday, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell welcomed inflation coming down. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer was at the briefing. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says inflation is still too high. By some measures, it's still above 3 percent, but it's a delicate balancing act. The Fed raised interest rates to slow the economy and tamp down inflation. Powell says now the Fed has to be careful not to overdo it and keep rates too high for too long. We're aware of the risk that we would hang on too long. You know, we, we know that that's a risk and we're very focused on not making that mistake. In fact, the Fed issued new economic projections that point to at least three interest rate cuts next year and more in 2025. Powell also said the conventional wisdom that it's hardest to get the so-called last mile of the stickiest inflation down may not apply right now. We just don't know. I mean, inflation keeps coming down. The labor market keeps getting back into balance. It's um, so far so good, although we, we, we kind of assume that, that it will get harder from here, but so far it hasn't. But that doesn't mean it won't get harder. Powell made it clear it would be premature to cut rates right away and declare victory over inflation. I'm Nancy Marshall Genser for Marketplace. The bond market soared on the prospect of lower rates next year, pulling the benchmark 10-year interest rate below 4% for the first time since July turned to August. As for stocks, let's do those numbers. 
Dow closed above 37,000 for the first time, up 1.4% yesterday. It's up nearly 12% this year. The Nasdaq went up 1.4% and is up 42% year so far. S&P 500 up 23% since New Year's. Futures this morning up 3 tenths percent. And there's news of stronger than expected retail sales. The government just said spending was up three-tenths percent in November, this after a drop in October. Consumers out there spending like this is at odds with surveys showing people are generally unhappy about the economy, which continues to add jobs as inflation comes down with no recession in sight. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. Ahead of the Second World War, the Brits had that poster, keep calm and carry on. But when it comes to financial market messes, financial planning, or even getting through the holidays, here's an argument that it is the panic, not the calm, that's especially instructive. Farnoosh Torabi is a journalist and author of the new book, A Healthy State of Panic. She spoke to our Nova Safo about turning stress and panic to our advantage on money matters. I can tell you I've had several friends over the last year and a half or so come up to me and go, do I need to take all my money out of the stock market? What do I do? <laughs> they were panicking. What is a healthy way to sit with panic when you are in the type of volatile economic conditions that we are now? So it's important to first acknowledge that what you're feeling is perhaps normal, but the real healthy move beyond that is to, a few things I would offer. One is to examine what it is that you actually wanna protect. What is it that is also specifically making you afraid? Is it the actual volatility? Is it that you don't have maybe the knowledge to be able to really grasp the nature of the stock market? Because I think oftentimes when fear shows up in our financial lives, it's really a nudge to get more educated. Fear loves to live where there is a gap in knowledge, in understanding. And so that might be the next healthy move. If you were giving people tips for gaining more financial literacy, what would that look like? What are some concrete steps there? I think what's exciting is that there are so many different ways to learn, whether it's listening. So there's podcasts, there are books, of course, there are websites and blogs, and of course, social media, which I would caution a little bit. Make sure that if you're following somebody, that first and foremost, they're educating you, they're not biased, they're not selling you, you know, crypto and other sorts of tricky and confusing assets, but that they're really there to bring you the education, the facts and the knowledge. And there are many people out there that do that, but it may require a little bit of, uh, of, of researching. Sometimes I say each and every one of us, we're all experts in finance. I know that may sound insane considering we may not feel that way. We've all navigated so many things in our financial lives. Let's start sharing that. And not because you want to mimic or copy paste, but because it can be inspirational or interesting or educational. And that's free. I think that we have mm. these resources and they're so under leveraged. How do you know when you've arrived at a you know healthy relationship with money? What does that look like? 
I'm not going to say there's this promised land where you're going to wake up one day and you'll never have any financial worries or fears. I think it's an ongoing working relationship, but I think having these tools to know how to continue to feel in charge of your financial life. I mean, I think that's ultimately the goal. You can have a beautiful spreadsheet and all the numbers look great. You can have a well-paying job, but if you're not feeling confident, if you're dealing with false narratives around money because you grew up around that as a kid, this is a lot of the stuff as adults we continue to deal with and it shows up in our financial lives. That's why I wanted to write A Healthy State of Panic. I've written many other books about the technicals of personal finance, but this one really was the one that I wanted to write because it was at the intersection of money and our mental health and our overall well-being. This is the stuff that sometimes takes the extra work, but it's the foundation. And once you can sort of solve for that, the math math's much better. <laughs> yeah, which is helpful. Personal finance expert and journalist Farnoosh Tarabi out with her new book, A Healthy State of Panic. You can hear more from our conversation at Marketplace.org. Farnoosh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Nova. Speaking of mathing, average 30-year fixed mortgages are below 7%, 6.82 using Mortgage News Daily's calculation. If you locked in an 8% in October, oh, sorry. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.